Ready to revolutionize your customer experience? Then look no further than NICE, the global leader in cloud CX software for self-service and agent-assisted customer interactions. Imagine achieving lightning-fast customer resolutions all thanks to the power of unlimited scalability and flexibility of one complete cloud CX solution. With NICE's cutting-edge CX1 platform, you can join thousands of organizations around the globe who are already transforming customer experience in the cloud. Now that's a pretty good company, but NICE is more than just a robust cloud CX platform. Its dedication to continuous innovation ensures that you stay ahead of the competition. With NICE and CX1, it's never been easier to create exceptional customer experiences. Get started by visiting NICE.com. Explore the world's most complete cloud native customer experience platform, CX1. Visit NICE.com. NICE, cloud powered, CX at scale. Hey, podcast listener, do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Busy Being Black listeners now have an exclusive discount at my favorite publishing house, Pluto Press, an independent publisher of radical left-wing nonfiction books. Established in 1969, Pluto is one of the oldest radical publishing houses in the UK, but its focus remains making timely interventions in contemporary struggles. You'll find a curated list of my favorite books and your exclusive discount code in the show notes. Professor Terry Alice Pickens is full professor of English at Bates College, and her newest book, Black Madness, Mad Blackness, has done nothing short of set me alight. In it, she explores the relationship between blackness and disability, showing how black speculative and science fiction authors craft new worlds that reimagine the intersection of blackness and madness. We spoke just before Christmas about her book, and it led to a really enlightening conversation about how we analyze the spaces between what happens and what we can know, intersectionality, the trouble with allies, the multiple purposes of silence, and ghosting as a form of discipline. And before we begin, I want to send a very special thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch for reimagining the Busy Being Black theme music, which makes its debut today. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Professor Terry Alice Pickens. I've got my notes here and I've got, um, you know, I've got passages highlighted. I was, oh my. <laughs> and I don't know, I guess I imagine you've spoken to so many people about the book and, and, and we'll get into it. Um, but I'm going to start off with a question that I've really come to love. How's your heart? Oh, right now it feels light. Um, I'm done with teaching. I am exploring work, the new work that's really um, interesting to me and really provocative to me. Um, I feel like I'm contributing in some ways to 
the kind of world that I, you know, I'd like to see. Um, and despite everything going on, that that ability to be fully present in myself is is a space of uh, is a space of ease. Um, and I, I, you know, I think um, part of what being light means for some people is that you're not um, burdened by contemporary events, and that's that's not the case. I think for me, the lightness comes because I feel like in spite of everything, we're gonna do what we've always done, which is survive. Um, and for many of us, that survival is more than just basic. It's, it's a kind of thriving um, and not a defiance, but a, a showing up fully in who we are, as we talked about. And so my heart feels really like, you know, there's some, there's some good things coming. And to be honest, I did not feel that way in March. So <laughs> I think this is a bit of a journey. And I think that it's such an important thought. It's such an important thing to put out and to feel about oneself is that amidst the chaos and the maelstrom of this year in particular, that this lightness, which I guess could be almost be read as a confidence in oneself and in that ability to make that contribution, that that's really shone through for you. And I, I think I'm not alone and and wondering whether I'm doing the same, whether whether I'm having the same impact as I hope I would be having. Well, I think you know part of what is um, uh, freeing about uh, feeling this way for me is that the impact, the opportunities I've received to have impact, I've taken advantage of them. And so you have to think about what opportunities you've received to have an impact small or large, right, can, um, uh, if you are, so I actually have not left my home except for doctor's appointments um, since March um, because I have an autoimmune illness. And so um, I'm staying very much inside. But for those who are outside, uh, even in your mask, right, are you still, you know, is your energy fully present for people? Are you asking them, how are they doing? Or are you treating essential workers like, they're the obstacles in your way to getting back to safety. Are you um, patient in line? Um, do you tip people for takeaway, right? Like what is it that you are doing in small and large ways? And then, you know, for those of us that are blessed enough to work, um, how are we showing up for ourselves and our coworkers? Are we rushing deadlines? Are we being gracious? Are we, um, you know, starting emails with, I hope you're well, or it's been a, a really weird week and I'm just sending you all the, you know, whatever the professional language is from sending you good vibes, you know, <laughs> are you, are you respecting people's time? Like the weekend still means something to me. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a way that your ability to show up is very much um, intertwined with, I won't say dependent on, but intertwined with the opportunities that you've been given to be able to show up. So if you're not really given opportunities, right, you can't take yourself to task for not showing up for people because, right. you know, there's, <laughs> but the thing is people get a lot more opportunities than they, um, than they imagine. So. Right. And to, and to reflect on them, to acknowledge them and then to think. And it's interesting, actually, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking that we, we've seen a lot, particularly if you spend any time on social media, you've, we've all seen a lot about how 
um, lockdown, quarantine, COVID-19, mask wearing has actually, there's a, there's a big focus on the worst in humanity that's been brought to the fore. And what you're pointing to now is actually this, not necessarily an individualized um, expression of humanity and kindness and thoughtfulness, but actually that in, in recognizing our own opportunities um, that we've received in order to be grateful and to see, you know, to better move through the world. Um, are we also noticing those acts of kindness and graciousness and thoughtfulness and, and appreciating those for, for what they are? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a policy, um, a personal policy, no mean comments on Instagram, right? For me. Um, and it's, it seems small, but you'd be surprised how many little fights start out, or maybe you're not surprised. I mean, anyone who's on social media is probably not surprised, but how many little fights start out because someone tried to be funny and it just didn't land well. Um, and so for me, it's you know only compliments, only congratulations, finding the good in something and not sort of cloyingly so, but being like, hey, you know, I really love that even in this really terrible clip, you look fantastic, right? Something, something similar. To that, um, but it's it's it feels trivial um, sometimes when you say it out loud or when you discuss it as though it's um, you know something that's going to save the world. But the um, the acts there are are sort of contagious um, in the best way. Um, and I'm also I'm thinking about the way people have tried to characterize the uh, quarantine culture that we're now currently in. Um, and have done so without a lens toward disability, uh, a, without a lens toward blackness and the ways that confined spaces or spaces of oppression or years that feel like dumpster fires. I'm sure 1919 in Chicago, Illinois, US felt like a dumpster fire. Mm. Um, and uh, those cultures that sprang out of that are not internet cultures. They're cultures of Black folks. They're cultures of disabled folks who are making a way uh, when the rest of the world basically reminds it reminds people that it's not built for them. So when I think about like quarantine culture and the the way that it does focus on um, the worst in humanity, I think about all the ways that people, my people, are. Um, not perhaps necessarily thinking about the best in humanity. I mean, some, some of us are thinking about that. Some of us are thinking about our next moves, um, but thinking more along the lines of survival. Um, and this is how we've always done, right? Um, I do remember all the Twitter memes that were like, hey, white people, welcome um, to, yes. the, to the feelings that, that you're currently having, because we've been here for a while. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, all of that sort of swimming around my head, even in the midst of feeling rather buoyant, I think is, you know, kind of bouncing into 2021. I love buoyant. I think it's such a beautiful, um, word. <laughs> it does exactly what it says on the tin, I think. <laughs> um, and you're right, you know, that the communities that, that we come from, that we represent and the indeed the communities that Busy Bee and Black speaks to and, and is for, this won't be the first time um, in even recent history where, um, what does Lamarad Owen say? He said, whereas shit has been hard. 
for right. for a lot of us. <laughs> and so I always find that that conversation publicly um, very instructive, right? We we get to see who's experienced what, when, and for, and for how long, and and who's kind of used to it, and is kind of you know taking the hit, taking the L as as we always do, but also adapting and and moving forward in real time. I think it's really it's been really beautiful to see. Yeah. Um, I'm really grateful for um, Black Madness, Mad Blackness. And I think <laughs> you'll know because I was tweeting you, I think like 3,000 times. <laughs> like, <laughs> I saw some of them. I was like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> um, and and I'm really grateful for it because and I I don't I can't remember the the sequence of events that brought me to your book, um, but I'm pretty sure that I was in one of my Twitter black holes um, on Black academic Twitter, and was kind of watching this exchange uh, about Frank Wilderson not being the only person to look to for. Um, Afro-pessimism um, mm -hmm. and someone tweeted like a someone said well if I wanted to kind of explore black women and black trans people and, and black disabled people who who have a lens on Afro-pessimism who would I who would I look to and your name I think was in one of those was in one of those threads and you know Duke University yeah. Press is one of my favorite publishers and so when I saw Black Madness I, I had to get it and it really it set me alight Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much to me. I do remember that tweet because my first thought was, I'm not wading into this territory about Frank. Um, because the territory for him, it always seems to get really personal. And there's a part of me that's like, ah, I'm not going there, um, at least not in public. So <laughs> I just, you know, I remember that. Um, I remember some of those tweets. And I, I think, um, you know, it's it's funny because I I, I actually find Afro pessimism a little bit bankrupt in the way that it doesn't think about Black joy, um, and so and and very rarely gives um, attention to women, um, and the women uh, scholars, women and femme scholars who've been co opted into it don't actually identify that way. I was so going to ask you if you if you yeah. see your work within a within the kind of. Uh, I don't know how you would describe it, uh, what Afro-pessimism is. Is it, is it a theory? I think it's a theory. I think it's a way of uh, trying to understand how it is that Black folks um, in the U.S. in particular, um, although it is somewhat diasporic in its thinking, how Black folks move from a space of being um, legally objects to understanding their own personhood and whether that is sequential or whether that's concurrent. Um, and how that shows up today. What I take very seriously is that Afro-pessimism acknowledges the feelings of bleakness and depression and difficulty that, um, that come out of that uh, understanding of the world. And it takes very seriously the idea that the spaces for joy can be constrained and limited. Um, what I disagree with for me is, um, the kind of extreme that the spaces of for joy are not there, or that because legally we were once objects that we remain so, right. um, or that um, our understandings of pain are all we have, um, because uh, the one, uh, the one piece, or the one uh, passage that people refer to is Frederick Douglass and the beating of Aunt Hester slash Esther, because the name changes uh, depending on which Douglass book you read. 
Um, and in a narrative of the life of um, Frederick Douglass, an American slave written by himself, uh, what comes after that is a discussion of black music. And I think what some people miss is that the space of degradation um, can make space for the place of joy. Um, and that even if it is sorrow despite, that doesn't mean, if it, sorry, even if it's joy despite sorrow, that doesn't mean that that joy is any less robust or any less effective. Um, because quite frankly, if it weren't, no one would be trying to borrow it and make money off of it, right? Like if there's a, <laughs> there's a utility to what we do and not just in a capital, capitalist sense, but um, a joy that acknowledges that there's another side of the coin is a true joy, mm. I think. Um, one that is um, complex enough to hold the emotions of despair and then also hold the jubilant nature of what it means to um, celebrate your humanity. Um, now, one of the things that I think I did wade into in the book was the idea that humanity might be a bankrupt concept. And I was, I was really um, challenged by this um, in part because I think it relies so much on the things that do result in the degradation of black and disabled folk and particularly um, cognitive or um, cognitive, cognitive disabilities or mental health issues. Um, so I wanted to figure out where we were, where we could go. Um, and the conclusion I came to for now, because everything in the book is a conversation, is that uh, the only way out is through. Right, you got to reckon with the frailty of a human body or a human mind. You got to reckon with the complexities of community and how people do or do not show up for one another. Um, you got to deal with uh, the way that um, systematic and institutional oppression results in some, uh, I don't know, um, results in some uh, behaviors and spaces that are not just unsavory, but unethical. Mm. So if, um, if humanity is a bankrupt idea, then we're all bankrupt because of it, not just the people that are at the blunt end of the philosophical instruments. So, and I guess yeah, not, I mean, not just not. the ones who benefit the most from it, who would, I guess, be the most bankrupt because of that benefit, right? Right, right. Uh, I think, and, and you know, I'm very new to Afro-pessimism, and I think for anyone who's not an academic, i.e. myself, and any of the listeners who have been, you know, who've been on this journey with me, um, I think what's been so intriguing about Afro-pessimism is this challenge to, and I don't want, I don't mean to engage in a long conversation about Afro-pessimism, but um, okay. is that if we, if, if, if the premise of human is bankrupt, if it is constructed on the kind of enlightenment ideal of man, um, and if black people were never, and black women and black disabled people were never meant to be accounted for within the kind of soul, the enlightenment, uh, what is it, uh, Descartes, the soul of man or whatever, um, then Afro-pessimism then offers this kind of incredible way to think beyond the human, right? To think, um, and I think in that way has been a very interesting exercise for me to engage with people's, people's work and ideas to say, to kind of challenge it to say okay well if blackness isn't human then what is it right. <laughs> right. i don't know the answer to that i'm still kind of <laughs> still kind of exploring 
Yeah, but I think the premise is one we have to look at, right? So if we are assuming that the only understanding of humanity comes from an enlightenment philosoph uh, philosophical space born in the enlightenment, then we, we want to trouble that. Um, are there versions of humanity or versions that recognize the body and the mind um, in its uh, package that don't come from there? And, and the, the idea may sound like you're kind of grasping at a prelapsarian kind of straw, um, but the enlightenment is not a, an intellectual Eden um, to get beyond, right? But instead, there are Black cosmologies, other cosmologies of people of color, indigenous cosmologies to, um, to the U.S. and, and the lands of, of North, North and South America. Um, and I guess the question for me is, since this concept is not pioneered by Enlightenment thinkers, why continue to owe them a debt, an intellectual debt that um, constrains us? And where is the possibility for us to think about um, understandings of this combination of body and mind and you know, being a biped or however else we, and opposable thumbs, however else we define humanity, where are the other conceptions? Right. Right. One of the moments in the book, there's two in particular that I'd like to draw you out on, but the, the first, um, <laughs> I'm laughing because I remember calling my friend um, after I read this passage, because I was like, I, you know, when you read something and it hits you and you stare at the wall for about 45 minutes, I did that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, been you've been there, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's in, um, I think it's in chapter one, actually, when you're talking um, about um, fledgling and the relationship between Daniel and Shori. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so for those who haven't um, read the book, can you just provide a little bit of context about the role that your analysis of fledgling plays within Black Madness? Um, uh, yeah, so the first um, conversation is uh, me trying to talk to Octavia Butler. Um, and I wanted to think about why um, people keep saying that blackness and madness um, or blackness and disability writ large, race and disability writ large, are um, mutually constitutive. And I was like, it's not been my experience that the historical nature of um, being created together um, always plays out in lived experience. Um, and I think for Octavia Butler, she's very interested in where things put pressure. So in her archive in uh, San Marino, California, um, her notes indicate that she thought of social identities and personalities as um, a kind of pressure on a narrative. And if um, in fledgling, Shori, the main character, if her uh, blackness and her humanity and her womanhood and her amnesia are all putting pressure on this, where's that pressure felt? So with her betrothed, Daniel Gordon, 
Um, in fact, she's betrothed to all the brothers, which is um, really rather interesting to me. Um, in that interaction, the pressure is on her amnesia, not on her blackness, because he seems to accept her blackness. What he can't wrap his mind around is how her amnesia makes sense. So he's trying to um, get what he wants, which seems to be mating and sex. Um, because at that point, he thinks no one can break their union. Um, but her amnesia is the fly in that ointment. Um, and so for me, I was thinking about the way that here, blackness and madness are not alongside each other in the narrative. Blackness takes a back seat and all you have left is how her amnesia works in that moment. Mm -hmm. Now in other moments, here comes blackness and amnesia kind of flows. They're never really far from each other, but what's taking precedent does change. And so I think there's something about that scene um, with Daniel that just fascinates me. She's not in charge of the sexual economy. She's not running it. Um, even though it's a matriarchy, I, like there's so much there. They're crawling all over each other. It feels like a very sensual scene until you realize he's taking advantage of the fact that she doesn't know any of the customs. Yes, exactly. And that, you know, he, by um, to, uh, Shori is a vampire of sorts, right? And to mm -hmm. and to bite Daniel would um, would threaten her good standing at the Council of Judgment. So um, here you write um, his invitate Daniel's invitation is a test, one Shori must pass to prove her inaness to other council members, a perception of her identity dependent on both her race and her impairment. This is not merely about Daniel's desire, but rather how his desire manifests as a form of ability that takes advantage of Shori's impairment and bears repercussions for the perception of her identity. I mean, I almost hit the roof. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, of course, desire as ability. And I just had never, it had never occurred to me that one could weaponize their desire as a form of, of ability before. And, and I hope that doesn't make me sound, you know, not pay, like I'm not paying attention, but I thought that was an utterly fascinating uh, awakening for me. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I, um, I, have, I have a couple of shout outs to give for this reading in particular. Um, my conversations with uh, my friend and, and kind of intellectual co-conspirator, Timothy Lyle, um, he works on um, HIV, AIDS, dignity, queer, queerness, blackness in the body. Um, and I do remember conversations with him about the Reagan era and how in queer communities, the, um, the weaponizing of positive um, and the weaponizing of negative is actually a weaponizing of ability. So that idea was sort of percolating um, as a result of of his thought. Um, and then at some point I was like, oh, this is how Daniel is functioning. Um, but also, I mean, I think for disabled communities um, and for disabled women in particular, the ability of your partner um, can be mobilized against you and their desire become uh, a way of creating an ableist framework. Um, I love you despite yourself. I, I care for you out of duty. Um, and that way the disabled person is no longer inherently valuable, but rather 
part of the articulation of someone else's desire. And so there's a, um, there's a, a lot of correlation there, I think, to the way that Daniel's behavior um, could be seen as altruistic, could be seen as um, heroic, right? We think about the ways that um, people with disabled partners are often praised for their patience and their, their loveliness in the world. And I'm like, they could be the biggest jerks yeah. like and have <laughs> have no real um uh, no no real contribution to the life of the disabled person they just kind of benefit from being alongside them and so their their sexual desire their sexual positioning kind of allows them to to occupy that space yeah you write here yeah. about operating along the axis of desire daniel's craving of shori microaggresses her by circumscribing her within parameters that facilitate her erasure. Yeah. And, and that, that's the erasure of her identity, you mean, right? Of, of who she is and, and who she can be. Yes. Or who yes. she wants to be, but isn't able to quite get to because of the amnesia, is that right? Right, because I, I think at this point, she knows she wants something more than just surviving, but she's not entirely sure what it is or how to get it. And she can't be waylaid before she figures that out. Um, I mean, there's a, a lot of Law & Order SVU episodes about, about um, uh, reproductive predators or people who get, uh, men who get women pregnant um, as a way of waylaying their careers or their, or other ambitions. And, you know, that's one of the things I was thinking about. Um, the passage you just read actually is uh, one very sneaky little passage um, because it's the passage that describes microaggressions mm. um, and puts the focus on allies. Um, and, you know, I wanted to focus on them because those folks are the hardest to convince that they're doing something wrong. Yes. Um, and for me, they take the most labor. Um, so, you know, it's, it's easy to explain if you want to spend the time or labor explaining to someone who hates you, why it is their views are wrong, because it's so crystal clear where they have absented you from the discussion. Um, what's harder to do is to explain to an ally that no matter how bad they feel, what they've done takes precedent over how they feel, and that their feelings in that moment might be unimportant. Um, and so, you know, in professional settings, I just find that microaggressions, allies, uh, white liberals, they become the hardest to talk to because their sense of um, their invitation, their magnanimity is so grand that they can't conceive that they're actually doing something unethical and unjust. So this was, I mean, I remember writing this and being like, ha, I can do it. I can tell them what's going on. I, like, there's a, you know, that space where I was like, right, you know, and <laughs> you can do that in an academic book where you're like, well, I'm not going to focus on the villains. Let's focus on our friends. Because then you can say to your friends, hey, read this. <laughs> and it's not actually, it then becomes your own little test. But I didn't do that. No one who uh, helped me read the book or, or revise it was ever in that space because that's just unsafe for me. But um, when people have questioned me about this passage, this is always what I get the opportunity to say. Yeah. Friends are harder work. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a couple of books, like, uh, sorry, a couple of passages um, that remind me that you're 
that are similar to that. Sorry, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so there's one about microaggressions. There's also the one about evacuating black women from conversations about intersectionality, um, which I, I will tell you, I put everywhere. <laughs> I put it on LinkedIn and, and started quite a conversation there on LinkedIn because it's something I feel deeply passionate about that I don't use intersectionality to describe my lived experience, for example, um, because I think that removing black women from a conversation about intersectionality is part of the harm, right? And that as a, as a black man, as a black queer man, I have plenty of language and experiences and histories to help make sense of the experience that I live. And it's, it's okay for me not to use intersectionality, right? <laughs> it's okay for me not to use that as a, as a framework to understand myself and my experience. Yeah. I mean, I would, um, I, think it, I think it may apply, right, for your experience, um, so long as, well, my issue in the, in, the, in the use of it that evacuates black women from it is that people say that the theory is too narrow. So to expand it to include black masculinity, black queer masculinity is actually a, a really useful way of interpreting the theory. What's not is to say, oh, this doesn't work for transnational women. Okay, make your own theory. Um, I mean, I also think, um, you know, academics are not unlike other folks when they find something that doesn't fit. Um, it's so much easier to critique than to create. And so, um, what you often have is people uh, find space to critique um, their misinterpretation of Crenshaw's uh, theory. Um, I take up a couple of people here, um, but I, my concern with them has been uh, that their sense of what intersectionality can do and is doing when located on the bodies of Black women um, is is rather limited which is one of the reasons why they keep expecting it to do something quote unquote more whatever that more is and i'm like well it's it's already doing quite a bit by focusing on us everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium well magnesium is the number one mineral that 75 percent of americans are deficient in if you are a woman over 35 magnesium will help you rediscover balance energy and vitality Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and, and that challenge, you know, um, let's, you know, if you are uh, speaking to someone else about this and I said, okay, like, you know, let's say we both understand the genesis and the origin story of intersectionality. We both understand that it should be located um, or should be really focused in my opinion, should really stay focused on the experiences of black women, black trans women, black disabled women, black women, right? Let's start there. And let's say you can't use intersectionality to describe your experience. Now describe your experience, right? You do the work of describing your experience that doesn't rely upon or rest upon 
intersectionality because I think it's rather lazy. I think it's a lazy way to approach the description or the understanding of one's experience. And I think that as men in particular, we have a responsibility not to do that, not to be lazy. Not to cannibalize black women's work and call it your own. Yeah. 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 yeah I hear that. Like, I hear that. Yeah, so I'm always challenging people about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, do you know what that means? <laughs> um, and the other, um, I, the second part of the book that um, really lit me up is more of a theme that runs throughout it versus kind of a particular passage. And, and I think if I remember correctly, this is borrowed from, from Fanon or inspired by Fanon at the very least. It's the exploration of the gaps in the folds. Yes, of... Uh, inspired by a couple of people. Uh, Fanon is one, and then um, Tavia Nyango is, is one of the others. This, um, this idea that, uh, <laughs> that history is a kind of entanglement, um, not in a Jada Pinkett sense, but like an actual <laughs> <laughs> entanglement of ideas. Um, the, the main progenitor of that is Hortense Spillers, um, because ah. she comes up with a fold much, um, you know, prior to, um, prior to others. Um, and I, it's so, it's so interesting right now. I'm trying to remember the person with whom she's in conversation. And uh, yes, um, Deleuze. She comes up with the fold before Deleuze. Um, although he gets kind of credited with it. Right. Um, and so, you know, Horton Spillers uh, talks about the way that history and the narrativizing of history with Black people um, and the creation of history with the Middle Passage um, leaves, leaves many things open. Um, that the flesh, that the concept of transforming flesh into object, uh, desexing, unsexing people, ungendering them, um, is one way to create a set of folds and gaps and gaps and erasures and we, we live with them. Um, and then I guess everyone else has kind of come alongside, like, like backup singers kind of after Hortense Spillers, you've got Moten and um, Fanon comes before Hortense Spillers, but his, his work is complementary, not, um, not primary. Uh, and then uh, Inyango and, and a few others that kind of come alongside and and give me a little bit of an armature to, to talk about where you see the gap um, and how you can analyze the space that doesn't quite exist. And so how um, do you or, analyze the, the space that doesn't quite exist? Okay, well, first you gotta find it. <laughs> first you gotta find it. And, and there's some people who live in that space and so they can't find it because they're in it. And then there's some people who don't live in the space and they can't find it because they don't respect it. But I, I think, Either way, when you find it, it's a space of um, a possibility. And I think it's often a space where there's a gap between what you know um, and, and what you can know. Right. So um, there's a lot of talk right now about uh, the vaccine um, and whether Black people will take it. And the, the history that's been bandied about, um, at least in conversations in the US, is the Tuskegee experiment. Um, and there's a, there's a fold, there's a gap. Um, how people are understood. So what, what happened was that for a period of about 40 years, 45 years, um, black men were experimented on and allowed to develop syphilis even though there was a cure for it. 
um, and meticulous records were kept um, on these men and their bodies without ever offering them treatment. And it was a way to understand how syphilis progressed. Um, and I say that in this kind of here are the facts, but what you can know is vastly different. How does it feel to be told or not told that your body has been an experiment for the majority of your life or that the pain that you've experienced both physical and emotional, whatever missed opportunities you've had because of this particular illness um, were completely, um, completely avoidable. Um, the idea of that space between what happened and what we can know, and not just from an emotional sense, but what even we can know about what happened, right? right? Um, that's a fold, right? Um, and, you know, I think one of, the, one of the brilliant ways that people live in the fold or talk about the fold is through poetry. So someone like Eve Ewing in her book, 1919, which is brilliant, um, gets at the gaps and deferrals and the, um, the missing spaces in the story about Chicago's 1919 race riots. Uh, or Alexis Pauline Gums and Spill gets at the spaces of the fold um, in the everyday lives of, of Black uh, women and femmes. And so there's a, there's a way that you rest with it, right? Like you can analyze it and you can, you know, kind of do what I've done here and open it up, but you can't necessarily solve it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that part that people find really, really difficult um, because they want to, um, they want to solve it. They want to make it better. And I'm like, you can't, you just have to be sure you don't do this, you know, this, you don't commit these acts again. Right. And I think I remember messaging you, messaging you about this, that when I came across the, the gaps, the folds in, in, in your work, um, I was so inspired by them, but I remember making a note thinking, this is a bit esoteric and I'm going to come back to this because I couldn't really get my head around it. And then I was in conversation with a black trans woman um, who is um, seeking international protection in Spain. And as she was talking about um, her experience living beyond a border within a physical country that yeah. she was beyond the reach of the medical apparatus that she was actually beyond the reach or, but just close enough to the police that she didn't quite have access to these things or could move through these spaces and she described what she living on like a neo plantation i thought oh my god she lives in one of these kind of metaphorical spaces right one yeah. of these not only is and it, it's not even a liminal space, right? It is, it is also a liminal space. But, um, and I asked her, you know, do you think that there's something particularly possible within this particular space, right? Is, it, is there an exercise in what the world could look like if we, you know, because the experience that she lives is one of kind of mutual aid, right? And bringing everybody forward and looking after each other. And without kind of glamorizing abjection, I thought maybe there, maybe that's the possibility that space or the folds or the gaps um, generate. Right. right. I think that that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I often get caught up in the fact that my own specialty is literature. And so I think about the places where we tell the story, the stories that we don't tell, um, that um, unless 
she um, writes a book or unless her story lives on through this conversation or through others, et cetera, um, there may be um, in the rest of history missing the possibility of her existence. And that becomes a gap in history, uh, a story okay. we can't tell or a story we don't know to tell. Um, and that then is for me becomes rather tragic because what you miss out on is not just the value of, of the life that she has lived and is living and will live, um, but also the value in how her life will speak to and teach and comfort and help create for others um, in the way that it just has for you and for me. Silence and imagination are two things that I'm thinking about a lot at the minute. Um, mm -hmm. One, because we're being called to um, imagine again as we've typically been called to do to imagine bigger brighter different futures i mean it was patrice colors who said in 2016 someone imagined chains someone imagined guns someone imagined death it's our job to imagine something different but also silence because i'm kind of um stuck on your silence will not protect you by audrey lord and the mm -hmm. what i what i would describe as the weaponizing of that missive of that aphorism of that statement um and it not being compatible with the lives that so many people lead. And so I, I've marked a couple passages in your book that talk about, you know, silence. Um, silence is a different form of language um, on page 61 and 62, um, which I thought was, was really interesting. Um, and I thought, if, if I was just to ask you, what do you feel about silence? Is that too broad a question to ask? No, that's fine. Um, so. I can talk to you about this passage in particular, and it's the one where I look at um, someone who is narrativized as cognitively disabled um, and um, how I'm trying to interpret the fact that that person is not in the narrative given any speech or not given much speech. Um, and I'm wondering whether that by itself um, is, is um, possibility. Now, I, I think, you know, part of what I'm trying to work with is um, how silence can be uh, permission, which is, you know, part of what Audre Lorde is getting at. I can grant permission um, and how silence can also be powerful to retract permission um, and how sometimes speaking doesn't save you. Um, so I'm trying to work with, with all of that in that passage. I think for me, at an intellectual level, I didn't quite understand silence and narrative until I read Danzy Senna's work. Um, and in particular, her short stories, You Are Free. This happens in Symptomatic and Caucasia as well. Her characters will not respond. Um, Gail Jones's characters sometimes do not respond. And the world continues, the world in the text continues moving on as though they haven't had a bunch of introspective moments. And what I get from that, what I glean from that is that there are times when your knowledge of your situation can free you. There are times when your speech can help free you. And then there are times when your silence is what is required for you to be able to speak more efficiently at a later date. 
So a lot of um, business magazines um, and, you know, personal growth spaces will talk about how there's always a person who's in the boardroom who's very silent, but when they speak, everyone listens. Now, as someone who's particularly loquacious, that is usually not me. Um, but what I will say is that silence has multiple purposes mm-hmm. because, and this is, I think, maybe leading into your question about imagination. Um, when you are silent, someone has to imagine something about you. And if they are predisposed to imagine your degradation, that is what they will imagine. If they're predisposed to imagine your power, that is what they will imagine. And so um, I think silence and half speech, sort of the um, no, uh, the hard stare, right? Like those are things that, that function to shape the imagination around the silence. And it strikes me that silence can be powerful um, especially if what you um, are trying to do is so doubt. Yes, but you also bring up as a strategy, right? That that doubt is a is an is a survival strategy. That the doubt as a form of um, active critique, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was brilliant. That also lit me up as well because <laughs> you know it's. I think one of the things that it strikes me about the book is. Uh, alongside this kind of really wonderful and generative um, and thoughtful or thought-provoking conversation about where Black studies and disability studies intersect and perhaps why they haven't been able to have a more generative conversation before, what's been missing from that conversation, is that there seems to, there seems to me to be kind of um, an amplification, a co-signing of like these bits of blackness that we know to be good and helpful and strategic, but that are so often rendered kind of bad or negative um, in a white world. And so there, there were moments like that in the book where I was like, aha, yeah, doubt and silence are good too. You know, like <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> silence but. is a form of grace. Silence is a form of power. Doubt makes sense, right? That it's almost like you're, the book has done a great job at de-gaslighting. I'm glad I'm glad yes I mean there's I'm from um the northeastern United States and um from New Jersey in particular and we have a reputation for being you know um clear sometimes too clear um uh articulated elsewhere in the country as aggressive right in our speech Um, and having quite a few Southern relatives and friends, I have learned the power of silence. Someone who says, hmm. (laughs) My heart just jumped. (laughs) Right? Right? (laughs) Um, Or, you know, like, how do you look? You look lovely. Mm. Right? And it's, you know that lovely is not what they mean. Yeah. Right? Um, because there's, there's silence and there's opposition. There, you know, there's so many different ways. Or, you know, one commonly known is uh, bless, bless her heart. Yeah, bless her heart. Mm. Right. It is um, a clear indication that person is perhaps not blessed at all. That's right. right. Or I'm going to pray um, for and, you is, is they're not, you're not about to be prayed for. <laughs> or you're about to be prayed for in ways that you perhaps don't anticipate or don't like. Um, they may yes. be asking God for some things on your behalf that you would rather not have. <laughs> so, 
you know, that that is also a form of misleading, a form of silence, um, even though in the spaces where it's uttered, it makes meaning very clearly. Mm. Um, but, you know, you can imagine I being me being confused as a child, wondering when someone would look at me and say, bless her heart. I'm like, oh, you know. Um, and then finding out later, no, she meant for you to stop what you were doing. Uh, mm. And I'm like, oh, well, why didn't she just say that? Right. Because that's what we do. You know, so there's a, there's a way that silence is, is quite effective. It's also pedagogical, right? Being disciplined in that moment um, to accept something or to not accept something. Um, you know, this is in terms of, if we were talking about Daniel before, thinking about um, maybe interpersonal relationships, ghosting, right? That that silence is a form of disciplining um, and a form of allowing the imagination to run wild about what did or did not happen, about how one word, one comma, one winky face just didn't go over what, you know, like it's a, yeah. it's a way of, um, of disciplining and teaching people. So that's I mean, an interesting way of looking at ghosting as well. Wow. Because yeah. it's always, almost <laughs> always suggested that the person who ghosts is a poor communicator. I mean, it's Esther mm-hmm. Perel, right? Who's, I think defined ghosting, icing and freezing in particular. And, and that ghosting is a, you know, all of them are, are kind of rooted in this kind of inability to communicate effectively about who we are, what we need in that moment, blah, blah, blah. But I think what you're suggesting is it's also an active discipline which i think is brilliant yeah it's clear it's clear to me (laughs) it's like i don't want to talk to you anymore okay that's what that says right yeah Um, part of it is you know in terms of gaslighting you have to in or for for those of us who've been ghosted one of the things we end up reorienting ourselves to is the possibility that this has nothing to do with us yeah all right, that the disciplinary action, the pedagogical moment is gonna miss us. Um, and, you know, and to also let go of the desire to respond, All right? So, you know, it's, uh, it's very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think anyone who's been ghosted knows that. I certainly know that. I know that, I know, I feel that. My friend and I were having this conversation about it the other day about how we both feel very differently about the utility of ghosting or what it says about the person who does the ghosting and what that, uh, what that person's responsibility is um, towards someone else. And yeah, I mean, we have very different approaches. So it's for, uh, thank you for saying that, for, for offering that. Uh, ghosting as disciplinary strategy. I like that. Um, <laughs> We are almost out of time and I can't believe it. This has gone by so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much fun. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm such a fan of yours. I've, it's even greater to connect now and, and, to, and to be in this moment with you. Um, I, think, I, I think you have touched on imagination. Um, and I think I'll use my last question to, or you know, feel free to use the last question as a space to kind of expand upon imagination. But I ask all of my guests the same question to close. What do you hope for? Mm. I'm trying to curb my impulse to talk about the most immediate things happening in the US right now. Um, because my hopes, I hope, are bigger than that. Um, although I do have specific hopes 
for for the landscape of the U.S. for the landscape of um, of various various and sundry places around the world. Um, I hope, really, I think in in the core of my being, that people come to an understanding about who they are and why they were created, that their uniqueness, their individuality is nothing to be suppressed, is nothing to be apologized for, but also not part of some grand competition. Um, and that if they are clear about who they are and what they bring to the world, and that that's not in conflict with anyone else, that their behavior toward themselves and toward each other will be so much better. Professor Pickens is full professor of English at Bates College, specializing in African-American, Arab-American, and disability literatures and theories. She is the author of two books, New Body Politics and Black Madness, Mad Blackness. You can find more about Professor Pickens and her work at tpickens.org. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, ratings, reviews, and shares all help. So please, keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Lazarus Lynch, a queer black musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for these triumphant and ancestral Busy Being Black beats. revolutionize your customer experience then look no further than nice the global leader in cloud cx software for self-service and agent-assisted customer interactions imagine achieving lightning fast customer resolutions all thanks to the power of unlimited scalability and flexibility of one complete cloud cx solution with nice's cutting-edge cx1 platform you can join thousands of organizations around the globe who are already transforming customer experience in the cloud now that's a pretty good company but nice is more than just a robust cloud cx platform its dedication to continuous innovation ensures that you stay ahead of the competition with nice and cx1 it's never been easier to create exceptional customer experiences get started by visiting nice.com explore the world's most complete cloud native customer experience platform cx1 visit nice.com nice cloud powered cx at scale